Everything that we do this morning is a response. It's a response to God, and it's a response to what he's revealed himself to be. So we have great confidence, as was prayed earlier, not only in what we do, uh, but to who we're praying to. And so it's with that same confidence and expectation that we open God's word and expect to hear his voice, because it's by his word that he causes life to spring forth where there's death, and he causes hard hearts to be softened, that he sends forth his word and it always accomplishes his purposes. So with all that in mind, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 7. If you're new here or visiting or if you're unfamiliar with God's Word, you'll find a copy of the Bible in front of you, uh, somewhere near to you in the seat back in front of you. And the book that we're in, the book of Exodus, you may be helped to know that it's found on page 46. You can turn straight to there. The larger bold numbers that you'll find there, those are the chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers, those are the verses. That may be helpful as we're making our way through. Exodus chapter 7. We're going to begin reading and hearing God's word together in verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment." The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, and you shall say to Aaron, take your staff, cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became his serpents." But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that you turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall be turned into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die. The Nile will stink. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, the canals, the ponds, and the pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned to blood. And the fish in the Nile died. The Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret art, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. All the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. And seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Would you join with me? And let's ask God for his help as we have heard his word. God and Father, we see before us this morning in your word such contrasts. The very same who heard your word, but those who listened, those who did as you commanded, and those who did not listen, those who refused. And Father, we're reminded of the very stark and very blunt reality that is before us this morning, that the mere hearing of your word is insufficient. Father, help us to be those who are not hearers only. Father, we plead your gracious work in our lives, that through the testimony of your scripture and the ministry of your spirit, you would cause us to be those who hear and believe. Those who hear and believe and respond in glad obedience. Lord, do this good work in us. For apart from your working, apart from your grace, Lord, we are hopeless. Lord, but because you've revealed yourself so plainly and so clearly as a God who is most certainly authoritative and a God who is full of grace, Lord, be kind to us this morning. Be gracious to us and turn our hearts towards your Son, we pray. Amen. Depending upon your age, you most likely read this section of Exodus, and at some point picture either Ewell Brenner and Charlton Heston, or an animated musical drama filled with voices from the 90s. The mere fact that several motion pictures have been produced concerning the accounts of the exodus and the drama of the plagues, the Passover, the parting of the seas, it's no surprise. It is a great story. But as popular as this story has become, there is an equally high chance that moviegoers and modern Christians have missed the point. The plagues are more than this dramatic flair that are peppered in the story for added entertainment. And the unlikely rescue of Hebrew slaves going from rags to riches is more than that mere story. In fact, 
if we just focus on the myriad of details surrounding each plague in chapters 7 through 10, becoming so entranced by the detailed symbolism of frogs and flies and water, we risk missing the bigger point. The opening verses of Exodus chapter 7 actually serve as an outline and a purpose statement for everything that's going to unfold up through chapter 10. It's an outline and a purpose statement of the interaction between Moses, Pharaoh, and ultimately Yahweh. It's what we just read there in verses 4 and following. The pattern is this. God will make his word plain to Pharaoh. Pharaoh will not listen. God will stretch out his hand in great acts of judgment. And through this, you shall know that I am the Lord. This theme of knowledge, and specifically knowing Yahweh, it's central to this section of Exodus. If you remember back in Exodus chapter 3, God reveals himself to Moses through a burning bush as the one who is the God of your father, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. The one whose name is, I am that I am. And then later goes on to give the divine name. Tell them that Yahweh has sent you. And just in case we aren't so clear on how central this theme of knowledge is, it's underscored in Moses' first encounter with Pharaoh. Back in Exodus chapter 5, Moses approaches Pharaoh, makes this decree to let my people go. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said, verse 1, to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said... Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. This theme of knowledge and the knowledge of God is so central to understanding what is unfolding here in the book of Exodus. So much so that we could say, in short, the goal of Exodus is not merely to liberate the people of Israel but that the God of Israel might be made known, that we might see his glory. And so as we survey these nine plagues spread over four chapters, keep this theme of God making himself known before you. Literally put it as a filter between you and the text so that you're able to see what you read has something to do with this God, Yahweh, making himself known. Because the drama of plagues and of Pharaoh, it's more than a good story. It's God's means to reveal himself to you and to me that we might know something more of his glory. What we need to see first is that all of this is laid out to us in a bit of a pattern. Let's consider first the pattern that's here before us. Now, I recognize attempting to cover four chapters in one sermon is a bit of a high-wire act. I recognize that I could fall to either side. On one side, attempting to say everything and something about everything and drown us in a myriad of details. To the other side, 
There's the chance of falling off the wire and keeping it so high and surveying at such a great height that we say nothing at all about this content. So my attempt to make it across, it comes by keeping my eyes fixed on the stabilizing structure of a pattern that emerges in these four chapters. And anytime we read our Bibles, we ought to be looking for the structure because the structure reveals emphasis. And the emphasis reveals the point of the passage. And friends, the point of the passage should be the point of the sermon. And so what that allows us to do, whether we're taking four chapters or four verses, we're able to say, what's the point of the passage? And therefore, that's the point of the sermon. And so my hope this morning in surveying and overviewing these four chapters is that we're not just doing a flyover survey, but that we're pulling out the point, which is revealed by the pattern, and then hopefully making sense of it. So what is the pattern that's here? Well, first of all, there's this pattern of the plagues. The signs of the plagues are really quite quite obvious. If you have one of the sermon cards and you were reading through these portions of chapters this week, that would have stood out to you probably most explicitly. There's nine plagues in four chapters. And because of their prominence, when we read this portion, they most of the time get all of the attention. And we begin to do research on the different gods and the background and what's happening, and we say, well, those were some... Those were some crazy plagues, and we keep turning our pages. Individually, we find in chapter 7, the Niles we just read was turned to blood. If you keep reading, in chapter 8, the second plague, frogs cover the land. The second half of chapter 8, 16 and onward, gnats over all the land. Chapter 8. Verses 20 through 32, swarms of flies are upon all the people. The fifth plague in chapter 9 is the death of all the Egyptian livestock. Chapter 9, verse 8, the sixth plague is that boils are now upon man and beast. And it keeps getting more elevated in chapter 9 that there's this hail that falls upon all who did not heed the warning of God. The eighth plague is that these locusts in chapter 10 eat every plant and fill every house. And then this ninth plague is a darkness in chapter 10. A darkness so dark that it could be felt. Those are the nine individual plagues, but there really isn't much of a pattern in just laying them out until we see that there are actually three groups of three. There actually is a pattern to these plagues. Each group of three is set off by the saying, go to Pharaoh in the morning, before plague one. Right before plague four, go to Pharaoh in the morning. And then the third series, right before the hail, go to Pharaoh in the morning. Each of these three plagues is marked off by this description of Moses rising early in the morning, warning Pharaoh, and then the subsequent plagues. So, what this tells us is this is not just a random, chaotic string of events. It wasn't just some weather pattern that happened to move in upon this time, and meteorologists look back and say, that was some angry mother nature going on, and we just had some cataclysmic events that moved through this particular region. 
These are divine cycles that hit Pharaoh like waves of judgment upon judgment upon judgment. Within these plagues, there is order, there is rhythm, and there is grouping in order to show purpose that these are not the mere retelling of natural disasters. My name is Yahweh. And he begins to reveal himself through the pattern of these plagues. But there's another pattern, and that it is just in the repeated framing of there's Moses speaking, there is the signs, and then Pharaoh's hardening. If you read through these plagues in one sitting, you'll see that structure emerge. God speaks through Moses, the signs are given, and then Pharaoh hardens his heart. Again, the opening verses of chapter 7, they really serve as a template to guide us through the account. There is this pattern as it's laid out right there, as God tells Moses, look, Moses, huddle up, this is what's going to happen. You're going to speak, I'm going to send you before Pharaoh. I'm going to perform these great acts of judgment that my name might be known. And Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. Let's survey these encounters just by moving through the pages of our Bible and seeing how this unfolds. Look back at chapter 7, verse 7, the first plague. Moses and Aaron speak to Pharaoh, demanding the people go free. Moses performs the miracle before Pharaoh, turning his staff into a snake. And then in verse 13, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So that's the first miracle, then the first plague, verse 14. God speaks to Moses, warns of the Nile being turned to blood, and then look at verse 22. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen. Chapter 8, verse 1. God speaks through Moses. He warns of the second plague of frogs, and then in 8.15, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not listen to them. Next verse, chapter 8, verse 16. The dust of the earth become gnats all over the land of Egypt. And then in 8.19, look at that. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen. Chapter 8, verse 20. Moses, there it is, rises early, speaks to Pharaoh, warning of this fourth plague of flies. And then in 8.32, at the end, after the flies are there, Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. Chapter 9, God speaks through Moses and warns of a severe plague falling upon the livestock of Egypt. Sure enough, just as God said, it happens. And then in verse 7, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Chapter 9, verse 8. Moses takes handfuls of soot, throws it into the air, and now painful boils break out upon man and beast throughout all of Egypt. And then look at verse 12 of chapter 9. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen. Chapter 9, 13. Here's our pattern again. God speaks through Moses, demanding the release of the Hebrews, warns of the plague of hail upon the land of Egypt, but not upon the Hebrews in Goshen, making distinction. But in verse 34, look at it. Pharaoh sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Now turn over to chapter 10. God speaks through Moses. Pharaoh refuses, and now we have a plague of locusts. 
that devour the land. Look at verse 20. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go. Ninth plague, chapter 10, verse 21. Moses stretches out his hand, and there is darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. And in verse 27 of chapter 10, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. God speaks. Signs are given. Pharaoh refuses to listen, and his heart is hardened. This pattern is here to instruct us. So much of Old Testament narrative teaches us not explicitly by what it says, but how it says it. And repetition is one of the ways in which we learn from the message of what's being given to us. The repetition here, friends, is for our benefit. God speaks, God warns, yet man refuses. But what do we do with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? Has that puzzled you? Does that concern you? Does that make sense to you? Exodus tells us three things about Pharaoh's heart. Maybe you noticed them just as we read through consecutively. If you group all of them together, you can find that three things are happening to Pharaoh's heart here. One, the Lord hardened it. Two, we also read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then there's other descriptions of where just his heart became hard. In plagues 2, 4, and 7, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. In plagues 6, 8, and 9, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And in plagues 1, 3, and 5, his heart was hardened. We have this emphasis upon all three tributaries pointing all to the same reality of a hard heart. So to put it differently, there's really two narratives that are being told about Pharaoh's heart through these plagues. Number one, one narrative focuses upon Pharaoh and his accountability for his moral decisions, which led to his own heart becoming increasingly stubborn and refusing God's will. By his own willful disobedience, his conscience becomes hardened, and he refuses to listen. That's one truth that's being repeatedly told to us in in Exodus. The other story is that according to the Lord, who is the moral ruler over all the earth, there is a point of no return that has been reached, and now the hardness of Pharaoh's heart must be imposed upon him as a just and fair consequence of his own choices. The Hebrew word is that God is literally strengthening Pharaoh's heart, galvanizing the hardness which is there, giving him over to this rebellion. Friends, this reminds us of something very, very important. It reminds us that as human beings, we have the privilege and the responsibility of making moral choices. It's a privilege because we can recognize moral values by the mere fact that we are created in God's image and we make responsible decisions. Whether you call yourself a Christian or not, or whether you know the God of the Bible or not, you recognize that there is moral value and you make decisions based upon those values. And friend, we would say that's by God's good design, that he gives us a conscience. 
we also have this opportunity and obligation to consider the potential consequences of our actions. And the price we pay is that every choice we make, either good or bad, righteous or unrighteous, it shapes our character, it holds us accountable to God, who is the righteous judge. Yahweh, the Lord, is the sovereign potter who has both the ability and the right to do his holy will with his clay so that no creature has any right to question him by the mere fact of who he is. This is the image that's given to us in Jeremiah, the potter and the clay, Isaiah, Romans, that there is some reality that we must grapple with that God is the righteous God and that he is the sovereign God. And Paul makes this very point in Romans 9, quoting actually Exodus 9.16, as God says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have caused you to stand, I've raised you up to show you my power, so that my name might be proclaimed through all the earth. Now, we do not stand in the place of God and determine when a person is given over to the hardness of their heart. That's not our job. We're given that category that that does exist. But we are not the ones who stand at the potter's wheel, as it were, and say, vessel of destruction, that does not belong to you. We do stand responsible for our own actions being warned that there does come a point which our rebellion against God moves us to this place to where he could give us over to our stubborn rebellion and galvanize our headstrong, self-willed, stubborn sinfulness that we persist in. In a sense, stop putting yourself in the place of God and determining whose heart is which and put yourself in the place of man and saying, what is the condition of my heart? That's why the repeated emphasis in Scripture is the call to repent. If in God's mercy, He is showing you a hardness of heart, if He is showing you the stubbornness of self-will to go against His good design, then confess, forsake, and repent. That is the message of Scripture, the warning that this category exists and the plea to say, don't harden your heart. Consider the mercy of God. This pattern before us stands as a warning. But this pattern also points to, secondly, a purpose. It's not just patterns for the sake of patterns. This pattern reveals purpose. Because there's another structural element within these four chapters that shows us, I believe, the text's primary emphasis and meaning. Within chapters 7 through 10, there's a phrase that's actually repeated seven times. That you may know I am Yahweh. And not only is this phrase repeated in the perfection of seven 
that we're meant to say this is a complete and full statement we should pay attention to. It's in a particular structure in Hebrew literature known as a chiasm. A chiasm is a literary device in which a sequence of statements unfold and then they're repeated back in reverse order. Kind of like a mirroring effect. And ordering statements in this cascading structure and then repeating them back in a cascading structure, what you find are these parallels between the first statement and the last statement that become the bookends. And then if you move in, you see parallel between the, the second and this one. And then at the center, there's, there's the heart of some statement. And so you'll find this structure in, in the Psalms. Uh, you'll find it in Proverbs. You'll find it in various places of Scripture that organize content in such a way so that it moves us literally towards the heart of what's being said, but helps us make implications by parallel statements. The repeated phrase, that you may know I am the Lord, frames up chapters 7 through 10 in this kind of one side of an X. That's why we call it a chiasm. What are these statements? Well, glance back at your Bibles so that you know where they are. The first one is Exodus 7.5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the people of Israel from among them. Second statement cascades down uh, chapter 7, verse 17. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn to blood. We take one more stair step down, chapter 8, verse 10. He said, tomorrow, Moses said, be as it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And then we step down to the center of this structure in chapter 8, verse 22. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that there are no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And then we start our ascent back. Chapter 9, verse 14. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people. Are we getting familiar with it yet? So that you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. And then we rise to chapter 9, verse 29. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. And the final one in chapter 10, verse 2, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you, Israel, may know that I am the Lord. Now, if the primary emphasis in this structure is that we may know He is the Lord, what are we to know about this Lord? Well, we could actually, when we use this chiastic structure, group these seven statements really into four categories of what we are to know and what I believe is the primary emphasis of this section. That God brings these judgments about that we may know He is the Lord and what ought we to know about him being Yahweh? Number one, that both Egyptians and Hebrews will know he's the Lord. We see this in the outer 
verses, the top and the bottom, the sandwich of this structure in chapter 7, 5, and chapter 10, 2. It's the bookends of the entire section that both Egypt and then both Israel will know that by these judgments, he's the Lord. Think about this. Every family in Egypt will come to see that Yahweh is greater than their magicians. He's greater than their gods. He's greater than Pharaoh himself. They will be able to say, Yahweh is the great I am. He does whatever he pleases. No one can stand against him. Not even our king. And the Hebrews... Every family in Israel, even, this will, God says, this will be a story you tell your grandkids, that they shall know the story of how I am the Lord. They shall know the story that we were in bondage, and whatever Pharaoh said, it came to pass. It looked like there was no one mightier. That is, until the Lord stepped in. He stretched out his hand against Egypt, And they were undone. By these great judgments, he is Yahweh. In fact, this would be a major refrain in the song that is going to be sung in Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? That both Egypt and Israel would know he is the Lord. By these acts of judgment, we could say there's a second thing that we are to know. That all creation is the Lord's. We see this reflected in Exodus 7, 17. And then in Exodus 9, 29. In those two that you shall know statements. What happened in chapter 7? Well, the Niles turned to blood. Pretty big aspect of creation. Have you seen the pictures of Nile, the river Nile from space? Can you imagine being there on the banks of this river? Can you imagine being an Egyptian and how intertwined your life for thousands of years would be to this river? It's hard to overstate the importance of the Nile River to Egyptian life because if you were an Egyptian, you were dependent upon this particular aspect of creation for your security for your provision, for commerce, it ultimately became your identity. And the declaration of God's revelation in chapter 9 is within the context of another aspect of creation. Hail, rain, fire from heaven. Such as has been, it says there, so that you may know the earth is the Lord's. From the waters of the Nile to the waters falling from heavens, all creation belongs to Yahweh. Have you ever felt the crushing waves at the beach? The ones that actually slam you to the bottom and toss you around like a rag doll? that maybe you weren't expecting and you got a little flippant out there and then suddenly you realize, I am in the grip of something much more powerful than I could ever stand up to. Have you ever seen the mighty winds of a tornado lived through a hurricane? 
Have you felt an earthquake under your feet, the sort of quaking that causes buildings to topple and granite boulders to cascade down mountains? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. That's the psalmist's conclusion. See, from our finite, creaturely perspective, we look at waves, we look at mountains, we look at earthquakes, tsunamis, and hurricanes, and we are in awe at the forces of all of these aspects of creation. But friend, those are merely just the examples of creation being wielded by a mighty creator. That all of this belongs to the Lord. And so when you see the power of creation... You are just merely seeing the Creator giving us a glimpse to just some of His working and how He authoritatively rules over all of His creation. And by this, we are to know He's the Lord. That all the earth is the Lord's. Through these great acts of judgment, we're also to know, number three, that there's no one like our Lord. Not only is all of his creation his, he is supremely unique and that he is incomparable to all of creation. This is the refrain that we see in Exodus 8.10 and then paralleled in 9.14. So this would be in the context of the second plague, frogs, and the seventh uh, plague, again, hail. So in the midst of these great judgments, the Lord makes himself known and says, there is no one like the Lord in all the earth. Now, why is that important? Well, in a polytheistic culture, one where you worship many gods, the problem is one of competition and comparison. If you've ever read, read uh, Greek literature, this comes about in the Iliad or the Odyssey is, the Greek gods are pitted against one another, or one is usurping more authority or influencing, or you can petition this god. And when you have many gods, they're always elbowing for who's going to be supreme, or whom are you going to petition. Comparison and competition. And here within Egypt, you have a particular culture that worships many gods. There's the sun god. There's the bowl god. There's this god with the frog, a head of a frog, and it quickly becomes clear all of these gods are unlike Yahweh, or rather, they do not compare to Yahweh. We see this and we hear this in Isaiah's um, prophecy as the Lord speaks through Isaiah in chapter 40. Who's measured the spirit of the Lord, or in what man shows him his counsel? He says in verse 18, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare him with? And he gives a few foolish examples. And then verse 25, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? Says the Holy One. These great judgments are stretched out so that we might know that he is the Lord and that there is none like him. Now, we might think that polytheism is strange or it's even a primitive worldview but we're no different. We might not worship the sun or frogs or rivers, but we still prop up our gods. We still need to hear that there is none like me. Why? Well, because when we feel threatened, we run to people or 
places or experiences to find God-like security. And when we're anxious, overwhelmed, depressed, we seek peace and drink, vacations, sport, more streaming video. And when life is chaos, we bow to this idol of control, convincing ourselves that we can color code, calendar, or finance our way through this thing as long as I keep my hand on the right metrics. We prop our idols up weekly. And Yahweh says, there's no one like me in all the earth. See, idolatry is not just simply foolish. It is eternally offensive. It's sinful. As we flaunt our pseudo-gods in the face of the true and the living God, We're meant to read the book of Exodus, see these great judgments, and hear, there is no one like me in all the earth. And just as God will crush the sun god, the bull god, and the frog god, God is equally merciful, friend, in that he will crush your idols to show you that he is the only God worth trusting. The very thing that your idols promise, he alone can deliver. And so he makes it very clear, I alone am the Lord. But there's one more thing, the last thing that we're meant to hear in these statements, through these judgments, that he is the Lord in the midst of the earth. At the center of these seven statements is the announcement of chapter 8, verse 22. Look at it. On that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, that's where the Hebrews were living, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. I will put division between my people and your people. Now, to hear that the Lord is in the midst of the earth is a reminder that though he is high above, he's not removed from his people. He's already actually revealed this back in Exodus chapter 3 where he gives this great visual image for us and he says, I have come down to deliver my people. He has not sent some lowly intermediary. He's in the midst of the earth. He knows where his people are. He's able to put a division between those who belong to him and those who rebel against him. This is covenant language. This is where God speaks of his people and his faithfulness to his people. It's the sort of distinction that's foreshadowing the coming Passover, where God will distinguish between his people and the Egyptians. When God will make a division between those whom he has mercy on and those whom he judges. So when we hear of the plagues or when you read of them, don't get sidetracked by the minutia of detail. Keep the purpose statement before you. These great acts of judgment serve to magnify the Lord that you may know that I am Yahweh. There's a pattern which reveals the purpose. But within this, there is great 
promise. The theme of God making himself known through judgment, that's not an Old Testament concept alone. That doesn't end with Malachi. This theme of judgment, it actually carries into the New Testament, into the teaching of Christ, and on through the authoritative teaching of the apostles. But, what is said is that even though judgment is certain, there's a promise contained within it. Turn over to John chapter 5, and we'll end here. John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son. Just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Friend, judgment is certain. But mercy is promised. God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given to him by the Father. God's purpose for appointing this day is to manifest two things. His glory of his mercy in his eternal salvation of the elect, and the glory of his justice in the eternal damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. Through judgment, God will make himself known, and you will either experience the glory of his mercy or the glory of his justice. Philippians 2.10 has this very truth in mind. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, and they will say, He is Lord. Pharaoh stands as a warning to us. Judgment is certain. But as we read it within the context of our Bibles, we can say, and mercy is promised. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. This is why Pharaoh stands as a warning, because he heard the word of God again and again and again. He did not believe. And in his hardness and in his unbelief, God raised him up to display his power that he might be proclaimed, Yahweh, might be proclaimed in all the earth. Today you are hearing God's word. How will you respond? Christ promises eternal life to those who deserve the plague of death. Christ can deliver on this promise because he has become a curse for us, being nailed to a cross for the sins of his people, rising again, declaring that his death is the sufficient payment for the sins of all who believe and that he's the victor over death. And he promises that if we believe upon him as the provision of the Father, we shall pass from death to life. So what the scriptures are teaching is that at the cross, the Lord has made himself known, revealing his judgment against sin and his mercy for sinners. And as God's people, we find refuge here. We are those who patiently await the Son's return, whom God raised from the dead, this Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The Lord is faithful. He has made himself known. So may God continue to exalt himself that we might know with all confidence that he is most certainly the Lord. Father, we pray that you would continue to mercifully and powerfully and without question make yourself known. We rejoice to know that we clearly see your judgment and your mercy there upon the cross, and we rejoice to know that the judgment we deserve he bears for his people and that you give us mercy and that you delight to do so. Father, help us to hear and to believe all of these things. Guard us from the deception that would harden our hearts. Give us the meek hearts that are able to receive the implanted word that's able to save our souls, we pray. Amen.